We were young until we weren't, but the books stay the same. Reading, reading our favorite books. I did not expect that conversation to go on for as long, but I suppose when talking about Lord of the Rings. I did say I had a lot of feels. I, I know. And we really worked through some of those feels. So, welcome. Diet Coke number two. Oh, open that bad baby up. I hope you have a third one for two hours from now. But, uh, <laughs> welcome to Reread, the podcast where we read books from our childhood and ruin them for everybody. And... <laughs> On this episode, we are talking about The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which is the fifth book we're reading, even though on my cover it says book three in the Chronicles of Narnia. Mine says book five. Really, I think the uh, the important thing to take care of is our bets that we made last yes. time. And I know everyone's waiting in much anticipation who is going to buy a meal for the other person. <laughs> and I have to say, Morgan, I owe you a meal. Yes, 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 yes. But you're paying for the alcohol because I do think there are some significant problems in this book. What alcohol? You don't drink. Well, I mean, alcohol for yourself. <laughs> you, you buy your own beer. But I should say that even though this book is called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, I did come up with some a couple of alternative titles. The first one being Two Prince, Two Caspian, <laughs> and C.S. Lewis's Manifesto Against Liberal Snowflakes. Those are my two titles for this book. Yes. <laughs> I had forgotten how hard he went in on Eustace, <laughs> which actually... Let's let's use that as a jumping off point. What did you remember from this book? Slash, did you read it? You know, that's a very good question. I vaguely recalled at the end when Aslan takes the form of a lamb for a brief period of time in, in just one of the most on-the-nose images in the entire series. There are a couple of images in this book that are so on the nose that I my eyeballs rolled out of my head but that was basically it was just the very very end of the book other than that I just did not remember anything else definitely did not remember any of the islands and just how batch insane the ending of this book is so batch insane oh my god I cried <laughs> This is the second time that you've cried while reading the series, but I hope... No, I didn't actually cry the first time. I didn't actually cry over how bad Horse in the Spoil oh, was. Oh, okay. So this is actually my first time on reread crying. Were these good tears? Yes, they were great tears. So what I had... I remembered a lot from this book. I would say other than Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, probably remembered the most from this book, which makes sense because my copy of Voyage of the Dawn Treader is the book that is the most falling apart. Actually, did I remember more from Horse and His Boy? Eh, I don't remember. <laughs> Hard to tell. I mean, you didn't remember the sheer racism that's, that's throughout true. the entire book. Okay, but I I remembered more from this book. I will say, like, the big thing I forgot is I forgot the very first island they stopped at, where they have the whole weird 
slave trade thing happened. I remembered every single island after that pretty much, other than the one with the water that turns things to gold. But pretty much remembered everything after that, remembered the end perfectly, remembered like a lot of the character beats, and uh, I really, truly, I think I said on the last podcast that like this is probably objectively the best Narnia book, and I went on Goodreads and fully changed in my little like favorites box on Goodreads. I have like one book to represent each series and I switched mine so that this is my representative for the Narnia series because I felt feelings this entire book. I definitely agree there are moments that are not my favorite, but like the great thing about the journey aspect of this is that like I think that you're able to move on from those fairly <laughs> fast as they go to a new island. And the ending I think is is so, I mean, other than, yes, I didn't love the on-the-nose lamb moment, but, like, the ending, especially with Reba Cheap, is so perfect to me. And I cried. And I, like, literally am getting my hair standing up on my arms just thinking about it because it just really made me feel things. Well, we'll get into this, but I do want to preface this. You might end up hating me because I thought oh, the no. ending of this book was... Just the dumbest. <laughs> Aww. <laughs> I'm sad. If you know how I feel, why would you say that? Like, you put me in such an uncomfortable situation. <laughs> <laughs> but we could get more into that at the end. I think uh, this book is going to be kind of interesting to discuss because it's really, it's not so much a cohesive story as it is just a bunch of vi- vignettes. Vignettes? Vignettes. Vignettes. I think. A bunch of vignettes. And there's kind of a through arc. Kind of. I think before we really dig into that, we should probably summarize what happens. Yes. So we open with Lucy and Edmund staying at uh, their cousin's house, uh, their cousin Eustace, because their parents are on a trip to America. And Peter is staying with the professor from Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, who has like, suddenly become poor, which is, like, very depressing for him, actually. (laughs) Like, poor Diggory, this is before Magician's Nephew was written, so, like, he wasn't a full character yet, but I guess he lost his wealth, and that's, I'm sad for him. And then it's like, where did the wardrobe go? There, There are so many unanswered questions from that. It's true. And again, Magician's Nephew was not written yet, so, like, I think this is another one of those moments where, like, C.S. Lewis was like, I need to be able to get Lucy and Edmund alone. So what am I going to do? This. It's so silly, though, because it's just like Susan and Peter can be at the house with used to, with everyone else. They could just be in a different room. Yep, it's true. But anyway, whatever. Regardless. <laughs> Eustace is like a horrible human being. He's just the worst. I love it so much. Yes, he is obnoxious. We criticized before the opening lines and ending lines of these books, but the opening line of this book is fantastic. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. And that's a great opening I line. Love, I really just want to read this whole paragraph, if I can, because okay. I, it, I love it so much. As you said, there was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. His parents called him Eustace Clarence, and his schoolmasters called him Scrub. I can't tell you how his friend spoke to him, for he had none. (laughs) He didn't call his father and mother, father and mother, but Harold and Alberta. They were very up-to-date and advanced people. They were vegetarians, 
non-smokers, and teetotalers, and wore a special kind of under- underclothes. In their house, there was very little furniture and very few clothes on the beds, and the windows were always open. I just fell in love with Eustace immediately. Oh, yeah. I can't wait to talk about Eustace, because I think he is some of, I agree, like, the best characterization yes. Clive does in this entire series. All right, so... He's being obnoxious with Edmund and Lucy when a painting in the room Lucy's staying in of a ship suddenly comes to life and they are like literally swallowed in through the frame. And there's like this moment of them standing on frame. I think the whole description of their entrance into Narnia is super cool. But anyhow, it turns out that the ship in the painting that they are now swept into is the Dawn Treader. And it is a Narnian ship and Prince Caspian, now King Caspian from the last book, is sailing to try and find these, like, lords that were loyal to his dad that his uncle sent away to, like, get them out of the way. And he's like, I'm gonna go find these guys and just, like, explore why he thinks that, like, only a couple years into his reign, this is a great thing for him to do. (laughs) Who knows? But Caspian's already demonstrated that maybe he's not the best king. And hey, at least we have a native Narnian sitting on the throne as regent for him while he's away, our good friend Trumpkin from the last book. Wait, no, it's not Trumpkin. It's Dr. Cornelius. No, I think it's Trumpkin. I think it's definitely Cornelius. Okay. We're literally going to have to find this right now because um, I will not. I must be right. All right. Let's see. Um, one sec. I. Where would it even be? Oh, you're right. Did you find it? Yep. Yeah. Uh, whatever. Good. Continue. <laughs> I should have bet something on that. But, uh, yeah, so then they end up going on a trip that ends up at very, like, a whole bunch of different islands to try and find these lords. And they do end up finding them as they go along. I'll just, like, very quickly summarize, like, some of the important islands. <laughs> the very first one, they uh, accidentally get, like, taken as slaves, and then they have to, like, destroy slavery on the island. You can hear my enthusiasm in my voice for this episode. Indeed. The one after that, I believe, is the one where Eustace gets turned into a dragon. And he has to go through, like, a whole character evolution to, like, become not a dragon again. And then I think the next super relevant one is one where there are these invisible people that, like, take them as prisoners because they want Lucy to go into this magician's house to make them not invisible. And I actually really love that episode, but I'm just like, it's hard to summarize quickly. And then there's my favorite island after that, which is the island where dreams come true, which is the creepiest. Freaked me out so bad as a kid. Looks like somebody's having a bad dream. And I think the final island they go to is... This island, um, it has Aslan's table on it, and like stars come down and put food on the table, and I don't know, it's it's kind of cool, honestly. <laughs> um, and then after that, they sail on to basically the end of the world, and then Reba Cheap from the last book, who is a huge part of this entire book, and he is excellent, and Edmund and Lucy and Eustace get off into a smaller boat to continue sailing. And Reba Cheap decides to basically, like, sail off the edge of the world to get to Aslan's country, because he's heard it's in that direction. Um, and so they have a very, like, emotionally touching parting sequence. 
And then the kids run into Aslan, who says, reveals that Lucy and Edmund will not be coming back again, but potentially Eustace might. See you next book, Eustace. And they go back to our land. I think it is worth also noting the reason Reepicheep decides to go off into Aslan's country is that when he was a little baby mouse, there's a dryad who told him a poem that basically said, you're going to go east. And so he does because it's a prophecy poem. And you know how I feel about (laughs) prophecy poems. Well, but he also like wants to explore. He wants to be like the first person to like go to Aslan's country. And I think that's very in character for Ruby Chief. There, there are some interesting moments with him, but I, I don't know. I, I guess the best way to just, just go from island to island. So we can like start with the Lone Islands, I believe they're called. That's the one with the slave trade is happening. And uh... yeah. <laughs> so these are the islands, just to like clarify, I think we mentioned a few episodes ago that like Narnia for some reason owns, even though they're like not by Narnia. So, like, trying to see, yes, I, like, specifically wrote a note because we had complained about how, like, why are these islands Narnian? Like, were they conquered? What's the whole story? And, like, Caspian specifically asks, he's like, so what's, why do we have these islands? And Edmund's like, I don't know. They were just always ours. So (laughs) they're still ours now. Just full no explanation for that. But, yeah, so they've, like, basically because uh, Caspian's uncle did a shit job and like the telemarines were scared of like boats these islands had been under their own rule for like quite a while while still ostensibly being under the rule of narnia and so caspian ends up basically retaking the island and abolishing the slave trade taking the island though in very questionable ways in my opinion yes <laughs> in another book he, he would be a freaking mafia boss like there's 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 a there's a scene in particular that stands out to me where um he he's confronting the quote-unquote governor of the island and and he's doing this whole big show of force because like when he gets taken by these slavers he's sold to this guy turns out to be one of the lords that they're looking for And so they come up with this whole scheme because they only have one boat with like 50 soldiers or 50 men or whatever. So they come up with this scheme to make their numbers look much, much bigger. Like they have an army just waiting around on the other side of the island. So Caspian gets an audience with this governor, Gumpus, I think his name is. And first of all, his lackeys come in and like flip over the table, throw everything aside And then Caspian sits opposite of him and lays his naked sword across his knees, meaning Caspian's knees. And then he says, you have not given us quite the welcome we expected. We are the king of Narnia. And then in like later scenes, the Lord threatens to flog people. They're clearly threatening here to murder this man if he doesn't, you know, toe the line. That was never a condition of our agreement, nor was giving hand to this bounty hunter. Perhaps you think you're being treated unfairly? No. Good. It would be unfortunate if I had to leave the garrison here. And it's like, this is weird. This is very weird. (laughs) And the, the interesting thing is that you can't, I mean, you can, but it's hard to morally object to this because they 
are like doing this partly to like abolish the slave trade, which like I'm pro abolishing the slave trade. Why would you say something so controversial yet so brave? But like also it's weird that these islands that again, they've previously said they have no idea why they're Nardian and they've been under independent rule since the telemarines like couldn't do sea things. But then Caspian's coming back in and is like, I'm the king here and you do not get to be independent. But, of course, Clive is like, but you must agree that Caspian should be king here because he's getting rid of the slave trade. So it's an interesting narrative choice. Yeah, and I think what makes it weird, because the messages feel so mixed because, like, at the same time, there's this whole thing about how this governor's big on, like, rules and regulations, and they make this whole thing that when Caspian first arrives and he's literally being chased by every woman in the town... Because he's just so dreamy. You know, there's like a the person guarding the gate is like, you can only come between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on Saturdays, like the first Saturday of every month. That's the only time without an appointment that you can come talk to this guy. And there, there are other elements like that. And so it seems to be making fun of like bureaucracy. And then you basically have this guy coming in with this essentially state-sanctioned violence to aggressively take over this place and impose his own law and order on it. Obviously, the slave trade aspect complicates it because it's like, well, it's for a greater good, but that doesn't necessarily make what Caspian does the right thing to do. I don't know. And maybe this is just colored by what's happening right now, where we're seeing state-sanctioned violence happening all over the place. But imposing your will upon a people through violence, generally, not a good thing. It's also just weird because at the same time, they really, like... There's a couple of lines in here where he, like, undermines the severity of the slave trade that's operating. After... Caspian and his company take over the islands and liberate the islands. They go to the slave market to free all the slaves and they find Lucy and Edmund and Reepicheep and they also get Eustace who <laughs> apparently they were not able to sell Eustace <laughs> and C.S. Lewis writes oh boy quote it is perhaps even more galling to be a sort of utility slave whom no one will buy, end quote. Yeah, well, and I think I want to put in the full quote because I do think it makes it perhaps even worse. The full quote is, for though no one would want to be sold as a slave, it is perhaps even more galling to be a sort of utility slave whom no one will buy. How is it more galling to not be sold than it is to be sold as a slave? Like, <laughs> Indeed, that whole part is a mess. I'd say the first 40, 50 pages are just kind of weird. It actually made me very curious because there's the characterization of Eustace basically as this super liberal type character, at least from the way I read it, because he's a vegetarian. They don't drink. They don't smoke. They have special underclothes. I don't Which, know. what are those? I, I don't, don't know, know what that means. And then also, like, there's there's a scene with Eustace doing this sort of proto-feminist thing where they're talking about like who who like rows the boat and like they say lucy can't do it because she's too small and then eustace is like well that's just degrading to women 
And so it's like, oh, C.S. Lewis, you're doing that, are you now? So it's like this weird screed against like left-wing politics. And that actually made me very curious. Like, what are C.S. Lewis's politics? So I tried researching it. I couldn't really find anything. He wasn't apparently very open about like his stances on certain issues. And he, and he actually seemed to abhor politics in general. Yes. I mean, I think we saw that in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when his idea of, like, politics and power was just, like, letting people live. Yeah, and but it's, like, he's clearly indicating that he doesn't like vegetarians or he thinks they're silly. He thinks people who don't smoke are silly, I guess. People who don't drink are silly. People who wear special underwear are silly. People who display some kind of feminist thinking are silly. There's a lot that you can extrapolate from those first 40 pages that don't really paint CS in the best light, in my opinion. Well, I feel like really the only things, because we've also seen him like rail against some versions of academics, but then he's okay with other versions of academics and like intellectualism. And the only thing he seems to be kind of okay with are people who just like live in the country and are (laughs) alone. I very much feel like his his politics are like, just let people live in the country and be alone. He doesn't give us enough, I think, really to make too much of an argument. But other than that, like, well, he's speaking from very much a place of privilege in that he yes. was able to go out into the country. He was born in a family that had the means to do that. He works in academia. He or worked in academia. He was a lauded scholar. He could just do whatever the f*** he wanted, and that was fine. And I, I do feel like he's probably specifically railing against the types of people that he doesn't like that he's more likely to encounter, right? Like, he's not going to be as likely to encounter your average, like, ignorant lay person who would probably also irritate him. He's much more likely to probably, in the world of academia, run into these, like, hyper-liberal figures and exclusionist academics and that sort of shit. Yeah. And he apparently hates the DMV, which, you know, join the club, CS. <laughs> You're not saying anything radical here. So it's it's very clear, like, he just didn't care about politics. He wasn't informed about them. So anytime he does kind of take a foray into politics, it just feels weird and out of place. And it also, like... There's like a weird line, too, where he talks about like randomly mentions King Arthur and about how yes. people are going to are saying, oh, King Arthur's coming back soon. And CS or uh, the narrator's like, hopefully sooner rather than later. That's weird. I don't know what that's about. That comes immediately before Caspian launches this aggressive takeover of the Lone Islands. And you're like, is that what CS Lewis thinks effective government is? That's a little worrying. (laughs) I mean, I think that we already know definitely from Magician's Nephew that C.S. Lewis has this huge nostalgia for the past and he thinks the past is better. And like, I think that that's more of this, right? Like the idea that if King Arthur came back to Britain, as some people say he will, you know, the sooner the better. I don't know. It's just funny because he's sort of lauding this golden age of some pastime of King Arthur. And then he immediately undermines that vision with state-sanctioned violence. I mean, maybe the, the ends justify the means, but it's also just like, 
it just makes me a little uncomfortable that that those are the ends they're choosing. I think that also just like the means. Or I the mean, me- like if yeah. Caspian and Edmund and Lucy and Eustace had like come in and been like, hey, people of this island, I'm sure you're not happy with this. Rise up. Let's overtake this government. We should take Bikini Bottom and push it somewhere else. That idea may just be crazy enough to get us all killed. And then like put, I don't know, the people of the islands in charge. And we're like, Narnia will no longer rule you. You guys come up with your own thing. Peace out. Bye. They, they could have done that. They could have really worked with the population and made something happen. But instead they were like, well. Well, really Caspian, because Edmund, Lucy, and Eustace are all, like, stuck in the slave market for all of this. This is really the adventure that's Caspian's story, and it is the worst. And I think we can now, after two books, agree that Caspian is not a very good character. (laughs) Agreed. First of all, he's still as much of a non-character in this book as he was in the last one. And it's like, he doesn't really have an arc until the very end of the book, where it's suggested that... He wants to go to the end of the world with Edmund, Lucy, Eustace, and Reepicheep. And he has to be convinced by everyone that, like, no, you can't do that. You're the king of Narnia. You have to go back. And there's a moment where he, like, reaches for his sword. And I think it describes how he, he in that moment, had a striking resemblance to his uncle, Moraz. And it's like, oh, that would have been nice to see. 180 pages ago. (laughs) Yeah, I think that if you read between the lines, you can sort of see the Caspian arc, because I think this first adventure is really his, and it is about him. We now see that he's comfortable with being king, and he's comfortable with being in power and all of that. And then there's the moment on the island with the water that turns everything to gold, which I would kind of argue with Edmund's Island, but there's this moment where like Edmund and Caspian square off for a second because Edmund tries to like basically lay down the law about what to do. And Caspian's like, I'm king. You can't tell me what the f*** to do. And there's a couple other like minor little power struggles between them. And then that moment at the end is kind of the culmination of it because I think it again starts with like Edmund specifically being like, you cannot. I forbid it. And Caspian is like, who the fuck are you to tell me what to do, Edmund? <laughs> so, like, I think if you work, you can see the character arc coming. But, like, then the culmination, we don't even see on screen. Like, we just hear about it that, like, Aslan showed up in his, like, mirror and was like, fuck <laughs> Which, like, I do love, actually, the idea of Caspian's character arc. And I remembered it being more prominent than it was. Like, clearly, as a kid, I was more than willing to read between the lines to get there. And fortunately, it's not really on screen enough to, like, be easily available to the reader. The reader has to do a lot of legwork to get there. I think for me, too, it's just that the resolution of that conflict is so easy and wrapped up so quickly both in the sense that like Aslan shows up off screen to talk with Caspian and be like, you can't do this. And also that it's basically like an epilogue at the end of the book. It's one paragraph where it describes what all the characters did. And um, it says that Caspian, who when they're on that island right before they head off to yes. Aslan's country, they run into this sexy lady. Sexy star lady. I've got to tell her how hot she is. But if I tell her how hot she is, she'll think I'm being sexist. She's so hot, she's making me sexist. Who Caspian 
ends up marrying. And it would have been interesting to me to see Caspian struggle more with the responsibility of being king, even more so than just like, well, I'm the king, I have to go back and rule, but actually giving him some problems that he has to take care of that he's been sort of shirking in going off on this adventure. Yes. There is a line, first of all, C.S. Lewis already retcons how much time passes between Narnia and <laughs> yes. the Earth, where like a year has passed between Voyage of the Dawn Treader and Prince Caspian in Earth time, which means that it should have been like another 1300 years in Narnia time. But then C.S. Lewis is like, eh, it was only three years. And it's like, okay, that's so dumb, but whatever, fine. It, it allows this story to happen. I can overlook that. But then... What was more troubling for me is that where Caspian's sort of catching up everybody to the situation in Narnia, and he says, there's no trouble at all now between Telmarines, dwarfs, talking beasts, fawns, and the rest. And we're supposed to believe that everything is peaceful again after three years. And it's like, no, like, first of all, that's just unbelievable. But second of all, it's just this missed opportunity to have a lot of strife back home that Caspian is avoiding and would just rather not deal with. And so he goes on this ill-advised quest to find seven lords who aren't really relevant to anything rather than taking on his duties as king to lead the country towards peace. And I think it's interesting, too, because I think that the reference to King Arthur, which happens like very early on, I think is super relevant for the story because I do think that there's kind of like a Arthurian legends type feel to it like with the quest narrative and also like these seven lords like and then they all sit at a table at the end like it's all right that's all happening and I think that it also like draws back on like the feudal ideas of the responsibility of a king which is like the king protects the lords and lords help protect the king and there's like that whole relationship so within that context him like going to find these loyal lords is sort of a kingly thing to do but like yeah, I don't believe Narnia is working under a feudal system anymore. <laughs> I don't think there are any more lords left now that they've overthrown the Telmarines. Could be wrong. I'm not sure. We're not really given a clear idea of the political structure. But it very much seems like Caspian is running away from current day Narnia to try and like recapture this past that is no longer relevant. So... Again, if this had been all like on page and not us having to like read into like every single line, <laughs> that would have been great. It's so frustrating because the elements are there and you just have to do so much reading into it yourself that like you're basically making up your own story at this point because it's not even relevant to the actual plot of this book. Like even the Seven Lords... They're just a MacGuffin to make the adventure happen, and they're not even really relevant. And there's so many moments where it's just like, oh, well, <laughs> like the, when they get to the Dragon Island. And maybe this we can segue. I don't Well, I don't want to like. No, no. I was going to segue in from saying like to get us through Dragon Island and talking about Eustace, who I think we both want to talk about a lot. Yeah. Like the bad work with Caspian can I, I think be in contrasted with the excellent character work with Eustace and Lucy and even to some degree Edmund who I think all are fantastic in this book I think they get on the page 
characterization that's great i think that is a good segue to dragon island because that to me at least by far is the most interesting part of this book but i do want to note so like throughout the book eustace is writing a diary like it's mostly in the beginning and then it just falls off by the end but when they reach dragon island where eustace turns into a dragon do you want to know what date they specifically land at the island. Oh, I didn't even pay attention. What day is it? They land on the island on September 11th. Whoa. Now, am I saying that C.S. Lewis predicted 9-11? Oh. I don't know. That was actually kind of weird. <laughs> it's a weird coincidence. <laughs> like, obviously, it's a coincidence, but it's a weird coincidence. It's not important. I just, it made me laugh. Yeah. But I would like to pause, since we are talking about the diary, and just say I love the performative nature of Eustace's diary. Because I do think, I was talking with a friend about this, I think diary writing, even though we think of it as something private, I think it's an intrinsically performative thing. And, like, we were talking, me and my friend, about how, like, back when we kept diaries... We always felt like we were somehow like writing to someone and like you'd have to be like, hi, diary. Sorry, it's been so long since I wrote, but there's been a lot going on. And that's not necessarily the truth, you know? Right. But like you felt the need to perform for this invisible audience. And I think you very much see that in Eustace's writing where like there's this whole episode where they're like running low on water and he's like <laughs> trying to say... Like, it comes with all these excuses for, like, why he's up and about and potentially near the water. And, like, they're such clearly just total BS. But, like, he is performing for this diary that no one is reading. And it's it's such great characterization. And there's some questionable science in there where he's saying that, like, because they have to ration the water at one point because a storm pushed off some of the water. And Eustace is like, why should we ration the water? Well, because it's hot and like rowing makes you sweat. And then Eustace basically says like sweating will cool you down. So then you'll need to drink less water. So I should get to drink <laughs> more water. <laughs> and it's like, oh, Eustace, you little piece of <laughs> shit. I love you so much. <laughs> yes, he's like truly iconic for like the first part of this book. He truly is the worst in every possible sense. And like. You know this kid, too. I think we've all met this kid. <laughs> it's interesting because it's, like, specific enough that he feels real and distinct, but also, like, we've all met this kid. <laughs> Not to suggest that people who are vegetarians or don't drink or don't smoke. I mean, I'm not vegetarian, but I don't drink and I don't smoke. People like me, it's not necessarily the politics. It's just a, it's a way of being that this this character embodies that is so wonderful and so relatable. We all know that one person, like you said, who is just full of themselves. Full of other things, too. Like, Yes, exactly. <laughs> Which I guess maybe that's why they need the special underwear. <laughs> yep. Maybe the special underwear is just a diaper. I, like, really am curious now what the special underwear was. I'll have to, like, look up, like, special, like, what is this, 1950s underwear, whenever this is supposed to be set. Yeah, 1950s, I think. I don't Late know, though. 30s. I think it's earlier because the war was only, like, two years ago, 
in the kids' time. Okay, yeah. So it's like 1947. I don't know. I don't think the underwear industry radically changed in the five year span between World War II and the post war time. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> we are getting so off you. track. Yeah, the point is, they come to Dragon Island. <laughs> and Eustace climbs off to be on his own because uh, the whole like point of them being here is they've been through a storm. They have to like create a new mast for the ship because theirs got blown off. And so they're like, gotta get a tree and do all that ship stuff. And then Eustace climbs off and discovers a dragon who coincidentally, well, actually, I wanted to say, it is funny, apparently Eustace like doesn't read fantasy books, which is one <laughs> of the things he's criticized for. And he doesn't know what a dragon is, which like wild. But this dragon coincidentally dies right in front of him. He goes into the dragon's lair where he, of course, discovers a whole bunch of like gold and treasure. I love gold! And he ends up putting, like, this band on his arm and putting, like, you know, trying to steal stuff and sleeping in there for the night. And this transforms him into a dragon. And I want to say that the scene of him realizing what's happened to him is so creepy and so cool. Because <laughs> he has, he thinks that another dragon is there. Like, he moves one of his hands and it's like a claw and he, like, thinks so. it's it's a dragon. And, like, there's this whole, like, realization scene which is so cool. Ugh. I don't know if I would describe it as creepy as more as funny, but you have a thing about body horror that I do not. So I think that might be part of it, too. Well, and I think I also, again, read this as a kid. So, like, for me, that scene of, like, I knew what was going on, but this, like, you know, the dread of Eustace figuring out what's going on. And it was a cool way of doing it, is my point. That's fair. I mean, I read these books as a kid, too, so... Maybe just speak for yourself, Morgan. <laughs> you don't remember that. <laughs> uh, I did really like that scene because like, so this is a case where a character is transformed into an animal. But what is really cool about it is that we see it all from his perspective. So we see the gradual realization, oh, I'm not human anymore. I'm a dragon. Well, I guess he doesn't realize he's a dragon until later. And he's sort of putting two and two together. He starts to feel lonely. He starts to sense what he's lost in, in terms of his humanity. That, like, maybe he'll never be able to reconnect. Maybe he'll never be able to change back. And he starts to feel remorseful. And, and we see this process. It's, it's kind of sped up, but I think it works. Where he recognizes his own faults and starts to change. Yes. When he's finally transformed back into a human you see those changes stick and he is a changed person. And it's like, that's what should have happened with Rapidash. <laughs> well, and what I love too about him, his transformation back, and I'm sure we'll, we'll go back to cover more of what we're skipping right now, but like Clive has one of his lines that you hate where he like is like, and although he was a better person, like sometimes he still reverted because like, you know, it takes work to change. If he had just left that line there and done nothing with it, I think it would have been, like, justifiably one of those lines you hate. But you see it throughout the rest of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, is that most of the time Eustace is better, but, like, he has these moments still of being a complete and utter brat. And you're like, I love that we get to see that. Yeah, it, it goes up and down, and I and I love that. It shows change how it actually happens. Like, behavior is just a set of habits. And if you want to change habits, it takes a lot of work. 
of course, you're going to fall back into those habits every now and then. And I think the book does such a great job of illustrating that. Like, he is a much better person by the end. But he's still Eustace. He still has remnants of who he was as a person from before. And uh, it's great. It's great. It's great. He also has a spectacular discussion with Edmund right after he changes back, which I also do want to talk about the whole changing back sequence. But, like, I wish that conversation had been longer. It's a really short conversation. But, like, we get to hear a little bit about, like, Edmund empathizing because, like, he, too, went through a big change in Narnia. And I also think it's, like, a sweet kind of, like, boys don't really know how to talk about things. Boys are so... We're like, Edmund reveals this, and then Eustace is like, oh, I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> like, <laughs> if you were that bad, oh, we'll just leave it alone. There is a great line. Uh, yeah, where Edmund literally says, you were only an ass, but I was a traitor. And it's like, it is like this interesting moment of vulnerability between two characters that before just hated each other it was nice it was nice to see this reconciliation happen through a character's transformation so it's not just that you're learning more about Eustace you're also learning more about Edmund as a character and how he still feels remorse for what he did in the line the witch in the wardrobe there are layers to this like literal and metaphorical transformation that make it so wonderful to read and to sort of see it play out. Speaking of layers, like the layers of skin oh, used to store oh. <laughs> Let's just take a moment to appreciate you, Morgan. What a segue. <laughs> My goodness. Thank you. For that alone, I'll buy you a beer. That, that, was, that was good. Thank you. But I um, also wanted to just like briefly touch on there's some like cute moments in like Eustace starts helping them as a dragon and he can't communicate. The moment of like Reepadish. Reepadish? What? Reepacheep. <laughs> like sitting with him and like telling him stories and the two of them bonding and like Reepacheep not holding a grudge for the fact that Eustace once picked him up by his tail and swung him around. <laughs> <laughs> like that's great. That is great. But, um, the moment of, like, Eustace transforming back, I think is cool, one, because we again, don't actually see the moment, which I think is kind of nice, because, like, Eustace describes it as being very dreamlike, but we instead get his narration of it to Edmund, which I think I really love the way it's told. But, like, again, this, like, freaked me out as a kid, because, like you said, I've got, like, body horror issues. <laughs> Him having to, like, peel his skin off, and then Aslan, at the end, just, like, clawing down him and, like, Peeling him like a banana. <laughs> it's crazy. I would say it's even more horrifying than peeling a banana because uh, they come to this pool. And so there, there's like a very clear like baptism yes. analogy being made here, which I do think works because it's showing like it's dramatizing what it means to be baptized, which I like. And I didn't actually get that it was baptism until this read. All of my childhood had no clue. I think that's what makes it effective is that you don't necessarily have to read into it that way to get the significance. Like, that's just another layer to this whole thing. <laughs> Eustace is peeling off his skin. He peels it off, I think, three times, but it's like relatively painless. It's just the outer layer, whether it's symbolic or literal. Either way, 
it's not effective because he's still a dragon every time he does this. And then Aslan's like, move over, motherfucker. <laughs> I'm going to do this. So let's let me see. I find. Uh, yeah, I found it. Then the lion said, oh, yeah, Eustace doesn't know it's Aslan. But I don't know if it spoke. You will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab off a sore place. It hurts like Billio, but it is such fun to see it coming away. Billio. Yeah, Billio. Obviously, it's this very dramatic, wrenching scene of Aslan being a little kinky at first and undressing Eustace. But like a very dramatic way of showing like, what does it mean? Because like, the idea of baptism is that you come out a renewed person. So what does it actually mean to be renewed? And I think that's like a very effective way of showing it's not as simple as just like, oh, you peel off the outer layer and you're a new person. It's much more dramatic. It's much more incisive. It really gets to the core of who you are. And it's painful. It is mm-hmm. painful to change. And I and I think that's a great way of showing that in that one moment. And then he carries it out throughout the rest of the story, seeing Eustace having to change. Yeah. And I, I will say, like, I remembered really enjoying Eustace's characterization and all of that in this book. But, like... I really enjoyed it that much more this time, which makes me really pumped about Silver Chair, where he's one of our main characters. So I'm like, I want to see if that continues in the next book. I really remember nothing. So like, <laughs> I hope that we still get Eustace in the process of changing because I think it's, yeah, not something that can be done just on this journey, but it's the process of probably like years. Right. Yeah. I don't think there's really... A character who goes through this kind of dramatic change, the one exception would maybe be Diggory and the magician's nephew in terms of having an arc and sort of coming to terms with a lot of different things about himself and about what he wants. Like Eustace is just a really effective character in that way. He's really compelling. I will say, so on this island, they figured that one of the lords was, I don't know which, it doesn't. It doesn't matter what their names are. Nobody cares. They figured that one of the lords was there because they recognized that, like, Eustace, while he's a boy, puts on a bracelet on his arm, which is still there when he's a dragon, and it's actually stuck and really painful for him. But somehow Caspian recognizes, oh, that's like the bracelet of this one lord. I guess he was there. And then they speculate, well, maybe the other dragon was this lord, and he also changed. And they're like well, that's good enough. Let's just move on. They don't investigate it further. Like, what if this lord is just hanging out on the other side of the island in some other cave and he's still alive? And it's like, well, we we did our work. We did enough. I mean, to be fair, I don't think they want to investigate further because the last time anyone investigated, they got turned into a dragon. So, like, really fair for them. Yeah, but the thing is, if caution is their main concern, we see them throw that caution to the wind later when they freaking enter a veil of darkness that's filled with nightmares. I don't know. I guess my main point is, like, I I don't really care that they didn't investigate. It just really just confirms that we do not have to care about these lords. And I think that becomes a problem by the end of the book when 
they have to make this sort of big sacrifice in order to save these lords, these three lords at the end who are sleeping. And it undermines the dramatic tension of that moment. And I think that's why it's important that there are sort of two dual narratives of why they're doing this. Caspians, which is to find the lords, and the much more important and better done Reapsheep's <laughs> desire to like explore and go to Aslan's country at the end of the world. And that's why, in the end, the sacrifice, quote-unquote, isn't really a sacrifice because it's what Reapsheep wanted to do all along. Like, his goal this entire time has been to go that way. So, like... The little Lord's thing, I think, is a fun through line to keep you reading, but I, I think it's, yeah, very much a MacGuffin and narrative device and not something that's actually important. Man, we're going to have such a fight about the ending. I can't wait. Next episode. Next week. Until next time. See you later. Not a